0: University Baptist Church is a faith community striving to think critically, live creatively, and love continually in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. We gather on Sunday mornings at 5775 Highland Road between Lee Drive and Kenilworth Parkland. Visit ubc-br.org or at UBCBR on Facebook for more information. Some of the most prophetic words have come out of the lips of one man. For example, no one lives forever. No one. But with advanced modern sciences and my high level of income, it's not crazy to think that I can live 245, maybe 300 years. Or maybe, what about this quote you can't have two number ones. Probably the greatest pearl of wisdom that came out of Ricky Bobby's mouth was if you ain't first, you're last. In a dog-eat-dog world, this might be the truest saying of them all. If you ain't first, your last is classified as an apothem. Apothem joins the club of words that are pronounced in ways that maybe doesn't exactly look the way it's spelled, like my favorite word, cologne. It really, technically, if you were to pronounce it the way it's spelled, it should be calogna, Uh, and I say that often to annoy my wife. Apothems come from the Greek word uh, apotheme, which means something clearly spoken or declared. Uh, A terse and instructive remark can cause us to pause in our life and to rethink things. That's why we are taking a look at eight simple sayings that will change everything in this apothem series. Sometimes a powerful saying is the shortest one. So take, for example, the phrase, help. For this, we take a look at the book of Joshua chapter 2, verse 1. Now, Joshua is one of the most critical books in the entire Hebrew Bible because it bridges the gap between the ancient promise made to Abraham, the years of slavery in Egypt, the wandering in the wilderness, and the arrival into the promised land. And that's where our story picks up. The Hebrew people are encamped across the Jordan River in this "'Across from the land they hold sacred that was promised to Abraham's people.'" And Joshua chapter 1 says this, "'Then Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent two spies from Shetem, "'Go look over the land,' he said, especially Jericho. "'So they went and entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there. "'The king of Jericho was told, "'Look, some of the Israelites have come here tonight to spy out the land.'" So the king of Jericho sent a message to Rahab bring out the men who came to you and entered your house, because they have come to spy out the whole land. I'll take unexpected occupations and hiding places in the Bible for 1,000, Alex. The answer is who is a prostitute and a brothel? <laughs> the story takes a quick turn as Joshua sends spies off and to observe the habitants of Jericho. And, and I guess they took on the true occupation of 007 because instead of heading into spying out the land, they head straight for a brothel. We don't learn the spies' names, but we learn the name of the woman they went to see, Rahab. She's identified and translated in the Bible as prostitute, whore woman, or woman of whoredom. Or is she? Uh, Because there's a footnote in my Bible that indicates there's another way to translate its word, and I kid you not, this is the actual phrase in the footnote. Or possibly an innkeeper. I mean, which is it? That's an awfully confusing occupational hazard there. Either a prostitute or an innkeeper. I'll never forget when I was a kid, I jokingly told my uh, teacher on the first day of school when they were asking who we were and what our parents did for a living, I told the teacher my dad was a drug dealer. Well, technically he was because he was in pharmaceutical sales. You can imagine that didn't go over well. So it depends on what the spies are doing. It doesn't help that later uh, in this phrase, it actually translates, they stayed there for the night. That can also be translated bedded down, which insinuates exactly what you think it insinuates. Whatever the case may be, things quickly get dicey because these guys weren't exactly covert and their expert spied them. Their presence was noticed by the town and the local ruler sent out people to have them arrested. And you can imagine what would be done to them if they were caught. Look at verse four. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. She said, yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they came from. At dusk, When it was time to close the city gate, they left. I don't know which way they went. Go after them quickly. You may catch up to them. But she had taken them up to the roof and hidden them under the stalks of flax she had laid out on the roof. So the men set out in pursuit of the spies on the road that leads to the fords of the Jordan. And as soon as the pursuers had gone out, the gate was shut. So Rahab the prostitute, or possibly innkeeper, Is lying on behalf of the spies. If you put this lady in the township of the 1692 of Salem, Massachusetts, she probably would be accused of being a lying witch. And why would she do this? Why would she lie to protect these foreign infiltrators? Aren't they there to scout out for the Hebrew people to come with their clubs and their spears and their swords? Won't these men bring back all the necessary information to see her beloved city and her people destroyed? What's in it for her? What's the angle? Doesn't she know that if she's caught lying to the Jericho officials that she could be executed for treason and probably her family too? And maybe that's why this turn of events is unveiling Rahab's character shouldn't be so surprising to us. The reason this should shock us is that often help comes from the most unexpected of places. I've always found it a bit ironic that most GPS systems have a female voice guide for the driver. This is clearly a precise and brilliant vision of a woman technological innovator because we all know that most guys, if not all guys, uh, have a hard time listening to instructions. Actually, they could have their spouse sitting with a road map in the passenger seat with a clear, precise understanding of where they need to go next, and they will ignore the suggestion driving onto a dirt path because they think it's a shortcut of some way. Ladies, on behalf of the male species, I just want to apologize. What's going on in these situations is that guys know deep down into our existence that we are far inferior and less wise creatures than women, and we think that somehow if we will overcompensate it by acting like we know exactly where we're going on a road that we've actually never been to before, to a place that we've never actually gone to before, hence it's sweet, ironic justice that most GPS have a British female guide telling you where to go next. Why is it so hard to ask for help? It might not be with directions, but we all can admit that sometimes we have a really hard time asking for help in our lives. For some, we'd rather lift that really heavy thing that we shouldn't do all by ourselves than ask others to help. Or drive to five stores to find the the sugar we need instead of asking our neighbor. Or Google advice of a situation that we are facing rather than calling a family member or a friend. Or make up all sorts of excuses rather than asking a coworker to assist us. We can all think of areas of our life or situations that we have a hard time asking for help. And the diversity of situations where help is difficult to ask is just as myriad as the reasons of why we don't ask for help. For some, we don't want to be a burden to other people with our problems. We think that uh, people who are in dire situations that need more help than us. For many, we don't We don't ask for help because we have the fear of rejection. It it takes enough courage to ask for help, and no one wants to hear a no. For others, we have, 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 others depend on us for far too much. People that have taken advantage of our own generosity, and we don't want to be viewed as that kind of person. You know, you've had that friend that said, can you come help me move? It'll just take a few hours, and you're there until nightfall. And still for some, we don't want to ask for help because we don't know what others will ask of us in return. And maybe we don't want to feel like we are leverage for someone else's benefit. At the same time, we are hardwired not to ask for help. We are within our psyche caused to want to always survive, always to do things ourselves. And for many, we see successful people all around us, and we imagine that they didn't ask for help to get to the top, so we don't want to find excuses or admit weakness within our life to actually have to ask other people to help us in situations. This is where a deep psychological factors are at play within our life. For example, some of us have have a hard time trusting others. We've been burned in the past when we receive to no, know, or someone doesn't show up, or someone asks for an even bigger favor in return. And for others, it just comes down to pride and self reliance. We want to do things our way, and we're more than willing to drive the car off the cliff than admit that the GPS is wrong about the instructions it's giving us. And still, so for others, it comes down to control, things to be done our way. And, and for others, Our pride and self-image gets in the way because we don't want to be viewed as less than, as a moocher, as that person. And for all these reasons and more, we choose not to ask for help. We will go through as much pain bending over backwards to face the things our own way, by ourselves. As one person put it, rugged individualism leads to ragged individualism. Look at verse 8. Before the spies laid down for the night, she went up to the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given you this land, and that a great fear of you has fallen on us, so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to Sion and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family because I have shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father and my mother, my brothers and my sisters and all who belong to them and that you will save us from death. Our lives for your lives, the men assured her. If you don't tell what you are doing, we will treat you kindly and faithfully when the Lord gives us the land. So we know that the spies are in crisis, helped by the most unexpected person, a foreign prostitute, or possibly an innkeeper. She protects them, even even though they didn't ask her to. She puts her life and her family's life on the line to conceal the spies' whereabouts. But what we find out is that she, too, is a person in crisis. Rahab has seen the power of the Hebrew people's God. She knows what's going to happen. She has discerned spiritually the insights of what lies before her. And in turn, she makes a step of faith, believing that she is doing the right thing by protecting these men. And makes an even bigger leap of faith, hoping and praying that these men will remember her compassionate kindness in the most dire moment when the time comes that her family will be saved instead of destroyed by the Hebrew people. There is a word that repeats three times within this dialogue between Rahab and the spies. It's it's the words kindness or kindly. It's the Hebrew word hesed, which literally translates loving kindness. This word is used 248 times in the Old Testament. Hesed is usually a word used to describe how God feels about the people or how God leads the Hebrew people. Listen to what the psalmist writes. Show me the wonders of your great love. You have saved by your right hand those who take refuge in your foes. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. The spies recognize that Rahab has shown kindness that mirrors, that reflects God's loving kindness and goodness. And in turn, they show Rahab and her family equal loving kindness on the day the Hebrew people overcome the city of Jericho. This is a story of the power of hesed. For what happens in the coming verses is the spies will slip out of the city, but not before instructing Rahab to hang a crimson thread over her window. This is an indicator to the Hebrew people that that is her home as they invade. This echoes the Exodus Passover story. Rahab will act in faith. She and her family will be secure. And the Apostle James will later write of Rahab praising her as righteous in faith for her belief and willingness to act in charity, to act in hesed. Sometimes... Help comes from the most unexpected of places. In October of 2018, I was out of town in Atlanta leading a conference to train and select church starters for the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship. And this was the largest conference I had led with the most candidates that we were considering partnering. This was a very important time. And, and I got a call from Jennifer on that Sunday indicating that something was going on. You see, she, at the time, she was 10 weeks pregnant. But the next morning, whatever she was feeling was amplified, so she went to the doctor to get things checked out. And I was teaching a workshop when she called, and I knew I needed to step out, and she gave me the worst possible news. We had lost the baby. And I pulled my supervisor and mentor to the side to let him know what happened, and without missing a beat, he He assured me that he would take responsibility for the last two days of this conference. He instructed me to go book a flight and to get home and to get to the hospital as soon as possible. The cheapest flight to get home was $900. Yet CBF approved it and paid for it for me to get home without missing a beat. And when I got home, I took Jennifer to the hospital to have surgery. And we didn't know uh, at the time that her doctor in order to do surgery at this hospital, we didn't know that it was an out-of-network hospital. So when the bill came in, let's just say that it was more than we had in our savings and a lot more. And I remember calling the hospital on a hope and prayer to see if they would work with us on a payment plan. Instead, they decided to move our bill amount down to zero. Sometimes help comes from the most unexpected places. You see, Rahab joins the annals of some of the most unexpected people to be used by God for great things. She's an ancient female prostitute, or possibly innkeeper. One way or the other, she is a woman that is in a highly patriarchal society, yet her act of faith and hesed, loving-kindness, saved these spies' lives and delivered crucial information for the Hebrew people to help them take Jericho and the Promised Land with it. And all this because it was possible for the most unexpected person doing the most unexpected task. And if you follow the genealogy of the Bible, Rahab would marry one of the spies. She would give birth to a boy named Boaz. This is the Boaz who showed Hesed to Ruth, a widowed foreigner. Ruth was the great-grandmother of David, the greatest king in Israel's history. But more importantly, if you follow the genealogy, Rahab is the ancient grandmother of Joseph of Nazareth, the adoptive father of Jesus. God uses unexpected people to show Hesed and loving kindness, but are we willing to see it? Does our fear of asking for help get in the way of seeing how God is using other people to show us kindness? Does our self-image and pride blind us from experiencing the everyday miracles of being helped by others? I wonder how many times in my life I missed out on the opportunity to experience the divine, to experience utter transcendence because I was too worried what other people might think if I accepted their help too stubborn to see that I could do it on my own, or too worried about what I might have to give to others in return. I wonder how many times we have missed the opportunity for God's divine help from others because we're too blinded by who it was that God sent us to help. All we can see is their differences or their faults. Instead of seeing Hesed, we see the modern-day version of Rahab the prostitute. See, God uses unexpected people to show us Hesed, loving kindness. God uses the most extraordinary to do astonishing things in our life, in our community, and in the world. Can we get beyond the unexpected, the unextraordinary, and maybe even the offensive nature to see that all of God's creation is capable of doing wonderful things? Again, a foreign prostitute, quite literally, changed the world. When you really stop and think about that, who in your life, in this community and around the world, is waiting in the wings to do God's good work of kindness? Will we be open to ask for help? Will we be ready to receive it? I'm reminded of one of the greatest most fascinating passages in all the Bible. We learn that on the night that Jesus was betrayed by one of his followers, after he had shared a meal with his disciples, he went out to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray. And Jesus took a few of his disciples with, with them, asking them to pray while he went off in solitude. And, and this is where we get one of the most brutally honest looks into Jesus' lives. We learn that Jesus was overwhelmed by grief to the point that he begins to sweat drops of blood. He knew what was going to be happening to him, and this was a physical condition associated with extreme amounts of stress. But the grief doesn't stop there, because we read that Jesus prayerfully had a conversation with God in which he begs God not to let this happen. If there is another way, if you would take this cup from me, Jesus said. And just when we think that Jesus is going to skirt the inevitable outcome, He realizes it must happen, so he asks God for help for him to face this situation. He asks God for hesed. If the Son of God needs help, what does that tell us about our need for help? What does that tell us about our need to go to God in our time of help? And what does that tell us about how much we struggle with it? So first, considering what you actually need help with in your life. Sometimes this means owning our shortcomings. It means recognizing our deficiencies. It means realizing we're not perfect in order to be able to effectively identify how and where we need help in our lives. And this makes our ask much more straightforward and effective. Instead of saying that we just need help, we're able to name the things in our life that we need help with. I think it's helpful to also realize that when you ask It's a relational and personal interaction. It's not transactional. If you're asking people to help you in your life, it's it's about being in relationship with other people. And probably that's the struggle that many of us have a struggle asking other people for help in our life is because we don't recognize that we don't give that to other people. We don't recognize the connection of family and friends and coworkers. It's just a transactional experience for us. And we also learned from Rahab and the spies that while we might need to be cautious in receiving help from outliers. We also need to look for them in our lives. Look back at the span of your life, and I'm sure you would see dozens of unexpected people and situations that helped you become who you are today. When asking and receiving, live out gratitude. Use words to express how grateful you are for experiencing the divine in the moment. But there's one more aspect of hesed that I want us to touch on. And I'm reminded of this from the book of Acts. It tells us that in the early church that they were gathering together, that they were worshiping together, they were learning from scriptures together. But it's not just the things that we see them doing of just the churchy things that we see in their lives, but instead we also see them choosing to break bread together, choosing to live life well together. And one of the ways that was expressed was that we read in the book of Acts that people were beginning to sell their property and possessions to help anyone who was in need. Think about that for just a second. A need came up within their community, and they began to sell their very possessions and land to help other people to live out, to be a full expression of Hesed in their life. And I think that's the last takeaway from our text. Is eventually in our lives, we need to transition from being a people who need help, who need Hesed, to become a people of Hesed. Jesus tells us that the greatest of the kingdom of God are those who serve. Paul expands this by saying that God manifested himself in Jesus not in the form of a king, but in the form of a servant by displaying help, by displaying Hesed. And what's fascinating is that in helping others, It's been scientifically proven that we actually improve our health and our mental well-being. One study found that volunteering at least 200 hours a year decreases the risk of hypertension by nearly 40%. Another study found that if you help people on a regular basis, you lower your risk of dying by 22%. There's something chemically happening in your body when you choose to help other people. Your body actually releases oxytocin. It's a chemical. Um, It actually relieves stress, increasing your bond with other people. This is what's called a helper's high. It comes from endorphins that rush within us when we choose to be kind to other people. It helps our health. It lowers our blood pressure and stress and chronic pain. In other words, helping others... There's something that's more than just a tra- charitable transaction. There's something changing within your body. So Rahab challenges us to become more aware of the needs of others. In turn, strengthening the relationship with people around us, elevating our sense of empathy. And in turn, we see that our needs can be met. And we can be a person who helps meets the needs of others. But it begins with the power and willingness to use a simple phrase in our life. Help.